Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We chose that song for a reason, because today as we're kicking off this conversation, which I'm, I'm calling 316, it has to do with looking at some scriptures, one of which is pretty well known. In fact, you might recognize that number, 316. You certainly would if you've ever been to a football game, because you'll see the big sign there. Somebody's inevitably holding. This says John 316. It's John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a central verse, and we will get to that in this series at some point, but not today. But what I wanted to do is take a look at some other 316s in the scripture. What other places, chapter 3, verse 16, tells us some things that might actually contain some core and fundamental truths that we need to understand in terms of our faith and our relationship with God. And hopefully, if I accomplish my goal, the series is going to point out that it's not just about one verse, because it never should be. Understanding God and walking with Him and and, and learning from Him has to go beyond a single verse to sometimes the verses around it. And then sometimes even the chapters around those. And sometimes the book around those chapters. And ultimately, about what the whole Word of God has to tell us about who God is, who we are, how we understand relationship with Him, and the most important and most vital things of life. That's really the goal of this series. But we're going to try to reset our perspective on some of these, what we might call core ideas of God. And today is one of those, what I consider probably the most fundamental one, because if we don't get this one right, we really don't get any of it right. And it's a crucial element, and we'll find that it's one of those things in which we're tremendously at conflict with inside of ourselves. And one side of that conflict was really illustrated by the song you just heard. There's a certain aspect that that song captures, a certain view of who we are as people, a certain ownership or a certain authority, something about this world that places us in control. You can kind of capture all of that, and that's certainly a side of us. Then there's another side that I wanted to present to you, a a short clip that at least captures this, if not in a complete way, captures a basic idea. And this is from a movie from the 1990s called The Lion King. Yep, I got the same thing in the first service. Certain people murmured. Those are the ones who remember it. Okay, others may not. It's been a while. But watch this clip. And what I just want you to pick up is the basic flow in what is happening here. What are these creatures doing? What is going on? Because to me, that's the other side of the conflict. Just watch this real quick, and we'll continue the conversation. Okay, and so what you see there is an element in which all of these creatures are coming forward and, and they're, they're, they're checking out from whatever else they're doing. They're rushing to a moment. They're, they're leaving everything else behind. They're anticipating something. And they're coming to a moment in time which at, at this moment this lion cub is lifted up. Now, of course, it's Disney, okay? So you've got to accept it for what it is. But this lion is lifted up and in that moment of time you see them bowing in adoration. You see them exclaiming something. There's some element of this that's tapping in. I mean, the, the story is offered to us for a reason because it's, every story reflects something about us inside. And so it's tapping into an element that, that is in there that, that maybe even the story hopes to draw out. 
And that is an element in which we realize and we recognize there's some aspect in which there is another that, that to, to which belongs some focus, some, some adoration, somebody worthy of our attention, somebody worthy of our worship even. And so there's this element in us. Where does that come from? It comes from, a, I believe, a deep-seated place from the beginning of when we were created. That was there, and it comes out in our stories. And yet, we have this other conflict going on, this other element inside in which we want to be king of the world. We want to be rulers of all that we survey and, and masters of all that we survey. Both of those are going on inside of us, and I believe both of those have been there, frankly, since the very beginning. Because when we look back to even the first man and the woman, we realize there was a moment at which even though they had a proper perspective on the ruler and the authority of their life, that was lost in a moment in time when sin entered the world. And immediately, the very first thing they began to contemplate is whether they could, in fact, be like that ruler, that authority, take that place. That has been there from the beginning. And that, that, that conflict continues on throughout the ages. We see evidence of it today. It didn't start anytime recently, but we certainly see evidences of it. In fact, um, it was Christopher Lash who wrote a piece called The Culture of Narcissism. And he wrote in that that he said, Our self-centered culture, quote, demands immediate gratification and lives in a state of restless, perpetually unsatisfied self-focus and desire. We're, we're perpetually looking for self-focused desires to be fulfilled. And that's even captured, it goes on to say, in things in like our slogans. You know, a lot of money is spent on slogans. Companies will spend sometimes upwards of a million dollars for a 60-second spot at the Super Bowl. Why do they do that? Because they're going to put in that moment something through that they're hoping to hook us on, frankly, so we'll buy their product. And so something there has to sell to something inside of us and draw us in. What are the kind of things that they say in those moments? Think of these slogans, which are pointed out here. Spoil yourself. That's from a clothing line. You deserve a break today. Some of you know that if you've ever had an Egg McMuffin. Indulge yourself from a tanning salon. Uh, have it your way, another fast food place. Or how about these? These even get a little bit more extreme. Life is about creating yourself. Think about that. Life is about creating yourself. Life is a journey and only you hold the map. Greatness is in you. Just live life your way or my life, my rules. These are all slogans that have been used or considered. And it, it reflects the fact that, frankly, we, we have a very self-centered culture today. But it didn't start recent. It's always been there. And it might even reflect, if you think, if I want to pull up one more 90s movie, if I could... It reflects sort of, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio standing on the bow of the great ship, the Titanic, right? Just putting out his arms and saying what? I am king of the world, right? It's what we heard in that song. If I was king of the world, this is how I would do it. If I ruled things, this is how it would go. And so there's this aspect of, of conflict within us between us wanting to be the king and yet feeling a draw towards recognizing that there's a real king out there. And we see that actually in one of our first three sixteens. In fact, we find this in the book of Exodus. In, in, in the book of Exodus, we have a moment in which God, who appears to a man named Moses, and we don't have time to get into the details of his story, but Moses is there, he's, he's looking over, and he suddenly sees uh, uh, something that should not be the case. He sees a bush that is burning, but it's not consumed with this fire. Something miraculous, something amazing is going on. And so he says, I've got to check this out. And as he goes in there, he begins to have a conversation with a voice coming out of this bush. And the, and the voice begins by saying, 
God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say that to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That, that word I am, the Hebrew Hayah, is where we get the word Yah, Yahweh, which is the name of God, Yahweh. Or sometimes you'll see in your Bibles, it's translated the Lord with capital letters. When you see the Lord spoke, this is Yahweh. It's I am is his name. And what does that mean, I am? It doesn't mean that God's existed for a long time. It doesn't mean that God is a little bit smarter than you or I. It literally means that God is who He is. He, as, he is as He is. He never began. He never finishes. He'll never end. God is, in fact, the eternal and uncreated one. You remember the song when they sang in there and they said, we'll be here forever? That's, that's simply a lie. That's not true. We're, we're, we're not, we don't have ownership or authority on being eternal or being here forever. Only God can grant that. And so an idea that we can somehow have these kind of things within ourselves is just misplaced. God is the eternal, uncreated one. Everything is meant to be focused on Him. It's proper that that happens. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5, declares this of the Lord. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all the angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command, they were created. Everything in creation focuses on the majesty and the awesome splendor of the Lord. I mean, just to give an ex one example of this, one example of this majesty, is if you look at just an aspect of creation around us, you wouldn't be able to see this in the night sky. It's far too far away. But this is a, a structure that exists in the Eagle Nebula. I was talking about this with some people a few weeks ago. I want to point this out. Called the Pillars of Creation. This long structure of gas and dust is a place where actually stars are born. Stars ignite and come into being in this structure that they call the Pillars of Creation. Now that structure that you see right there is four light years long. That means if you could travel the speed of light, and nobody can. We can't even go 1% of the speed of light with anything we do. But if you could travel the speed of light, literally, it would take you four years to travel that from the beginning to the end. That, that group of, of cloud and dust right there is 25 trillion miles long. 25 trillion miles. And the funny thing is, is that structure is just one little piece, you can see it kind of up there, of this whole structure around it, which just is enormous compared to it. That's, that's one aspect of this creation that the un, uncreated eternal creator made. Or how about this one? If that doesn't impress you, look at that one. That's another one. The king is watching you. Right. Now that's another just a gas nebula, but it's also light years and light years across. These are structures that are out there. There are structures they know of that, that black holes, they believe, have the, have the gravity and the pull and the strength of a million of our suns. Structures called quasars that sometimes send out a pulse of energy that's, that's, that's as strong as, as thousands of our suns in one instant of time. Just absolutely pulverize anything in its, in its distance. And it's, I mean, th these are the kind of things that, that are out there. And yet, He created it all. It, it all bows to Him. It all responds to His Word. But it's not just the heavens out there. It's a little closer to home. Psalm 148 goes on. Praise the Lord from the earth. You see, he's king of the world. 
Not I am king of the world. He's king of the world. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all the ocean depths. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. King of the earth and all nations, you princes, you rulers, you young men and women, you, 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 me, you old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. Psalm 95, verse 6, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is, who, this is the king of the world. This is the one to which all of creation is called to bow and worship and, and, and adore. And yet, with all of that, we make messages like this. Check out this bumper sticker. My co-pilot? Really? When's the last time you or I made something 25 trillion miles long? Right? And yet, this is what we relegate God to. And, and, and somebody put this on their car. It might be well-meaning. At least they're, they're trying to give a nod to who God is. But I, I would submit, even in that, our perspective is still a little off. That he would be relegated to a co-pilot. Maybe we need to shift seats in that a little bit. And that kind of leads us to understanding him a little more, which is our next 316, because this God who is the maker and the creator of the heavens and the earth, who calls all to his bidding, also chose to do this. 1 Timothy 316. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. What is the great mystery of our faith? That I'm forgiven? We hear that. That's a Christian idea, right? And we'll get to that a few weeks out. But is that really where it begins? The great mystery of our faith is that what God did for me? No, no, no. We're missing the perspective here. This is the great mystery of our faith. He was revealed in a human body. He. Who's he? You look at different translations of this. Some of them say Christ was revealed in a human body. Others say God was manifest in the flesh or revealed in a human body. It's all the same thing because really if you look at the context here, it's pretty clear. And I encourage you to do that. Go beyond the verse. Go back home and look at it yourself and you'll see God is being discussed and then we get to this point to say, great is the mystery of our faith, that he, God, revealed himself in a human body. That's who Christ was. It's like that video we saw. Remember, they're holding up this, this newborn baby, this, this lion cub. Incidentally, it's kind of interesting that one of the titles for Jesus, I'm not sure there's a connection from Disney's standpoint, but it's just interesting to me, that one of the titles for Jesus in Scripture is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It conveys the idea of not only his strength, and his descendancy, but also his authority and his rulership. And there's a lot to do. I'll leave that to you to look up. But this, this small cub is held up and everything bows in adoration to this thing as, as the light hits him from the sky. There, there's an aspect of this. This is who Jesus is. He's, he's the Son of God. He's God who became flesh. The Lord, the maker of heavens and the earth, who came to this earth that he made in a body so that we could know him, so that we could experience him. So that we could understand him. This is what God did. In fact, it's interesting. I showed you the pillars of creation. That name for those actually came from a sermon that was written by a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He wrote a sermon many years ago called The Condescension of Christ. It was the idea that, that God would condescend to come in flesh and limit himself so that we might know him personally. That shows something of his heart in that. But in this sermon, he describes that miracle of the birth of this lion. And he says, now wonder, you angels, the infinite has become an infant. He who created all things, who bears up the pillars of creation. A beautiful statement. He who created all things, who bears up the pillars of creation, the infinite one, 
has become an infant. This is who we're talking about. And yet, 1 Timothy goes on. He, he appeared in a body. God came in the flesh and he was vindicated by the Spirit, we're told. That's what the Scripture goes on to tell us. What does that mean? He was vindicated by the Spirit. Well, one of the places that happened was in his first moment of his public ministry. And we see this in another 3.16. Matthew 3, verse 16. We see Jesus has grown. He's a man now. He is ready to move into this public ministry to declare who he is and what he came to do for us. And in this moment, he goes to be baptized. People in those days were being baptized as a way for them to declare that they had sinned, that they were turning back to God, that they were asking God to cleanse them. And yet here's Jesus, who really doesn't fit that formula, and we'll see that in a second, but nevertheless choosing to go and be baptized. One of those reasons is, as people have often said and said well, that he wanted to identify with sinful humanity, with those who hadn't done it right before God. He wanted to let us know that he identifies with us, that he wants to walk our path of suffering and struggle. And so that also says something of his heart. But there's more going on at this moment of his baptism that opens up his ministry in this world. And so we see after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And so you see in this first major moment when the purpose of Jesus being here is declared, what are we told by scripture? He comes up out of the water and he's told, hey, you were sent here to save us because we're so important, right? Isn't that what it says? Did I read it wrong? Let me check that again. Oh, wait a minute. I missed something, didn't I? That's not what it says. The most important thing that's first declared is that we see a moment in which God the Father is speaking and declaring His love for God the Son. And it's communicated through God the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing we see. And in this moment of time, we realize something. Hopefully we begin to realize this. That the whole plan and the whole purpose and even why you and I are sitting here and how we relate to God is not first and foremost about us. It's about God. In fact, there was a movie that recently came out and there's a kind of a hero figure in the movie. I won't go into the details of the movie, but he has got a lot of potential, but he's also got a lot of arrogance. And there was one particular teacher in the movie is trying to guide him and says to him, you know, there's something that holds you back. You got a lot of potential, but... There's just a major thing in the way that's hindering you from really understanding and moving forward. And he, and he says to her, what's that? And she looks at him and says, it's not about you. Everything you do, everything you're called to do, everything you're capable of, it's not about you. You're not here to serve yourself. And there's some application to that here. Because whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or whether you're even considering that today, it starts at a very important place. And it's not, the starting point is not that Jesus came for me. The starting point is not it's about me. The starting point truly is it's about God. Jesus was unique. He was like no other person for the reasons we've already seen, but there's even more. 
As I mentioned, he didn't belong in those waters of baptism. People who were sinners and wanted to declare that, who had done wrong before God in their hearts and minds and actions and knew it, those were the ones that went in to be cleansed, to turn back to God, to ask for that eternal uncreated creator, to receive them back again from the ways in which they had separated from him. But that didn't apply to the eternal uncreated creator in flesh. That's not who he was. He was sinless. That was unique of Jesus, and you see that nowhere else. Look the religions of the world and the claims of the world over. I have. You see it nowhere else. There's one major religion out there and a major prophet of that religion that claims to have revealed words from God. People follow that. And yet, he himself, in their writings, is told one point, allegedly. God tells him, come and ask forgiveness for your sin. Even he cannot claim that he's sinless and he's done nothing wrong before God. And yet, Jesus we find standing before his detractors, even the religious leaders of the day, and asking them, which of you can convict me of sin? Which of you can say that I have sinned? And they're speechless. They have nothing to say. The scripture later in the book of Hebrews tells us that he's our our high priest. He can intermediate between us and God. He can call us to God on God's behalf. Why? Because... He is one that is in every way tempted as we have been. We'll see how he walked the path of temptation, yet without sin. He's the only one that can claim that. And, but it doesn't end there. That's not the only thing that makes him unique. 1 Timothy 3.16 goes on and says, He was seen by angels. That happened at one point. He was announced to the nations. People brought his message of salvation forward. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. He was taken to heaven in glory. What does that mean? The resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he came out of that tomb is unique because he's the only one that ever did it. One person wrote it this way concerning the major figures of the world who would claim that they have an answer for your and my eternal life and destiny, ones we should hinge on, and yet there's a distinct and stark difference between them and Jesus. And the person points it out this way. He said, here's the sum record of it all. Buddha's tomb, occupied. Muhammad's tomb, occupied. Confucius' tomb, occupied. Jesus' tomb, empty. And that's where it's at. Now that's not a statement to look down upon, and I would hope we wouldn't use that as a hammer, to beat upon anybody or, or their, their faith. Everyone is on a spiritual journey and we need to call them with, with kindness and gentleness and love. But that is the fact of the, of the matter. There is only one who has left that tomb behind and declared himself who he is. C.S. Lewis said it this way, for those who are still not convinced and think maybe he's just another one of those teachers. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man who said the sort of things Jesus said and did would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. And so you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Jesus is unique. He's one of a kind. In fact, I'm a a violinist, and 
I love violins, and uh, I'm still saving up for my first Strad, Stradivarius. Take me about 300 years, and I think I'll get there. Um, because one of the ones that caught my eye is the one that is the best. It's in a class of its own. It is more expensive than any other one. It is worth $20 million. Okay, so maybe it'll take me 301 years. I'm, I'm still figuring that out. $20 million Stradivarius. And incidentally, the nickname for this or the name for the Stradivarius is the Messiah Stradivarius. There's a reason they chose that name for this one-of-a-kind instrument. Because that title, Messiah, means the anointed one of God. It's a unique title and it applies to one and only one person who has ever walked this earth. And that is Jesus. This is who he is. Acts 2, verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Acts 10, verse 36. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Romans 9, verse 5. Christ is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Are we picking up a common thread here? Are we seeing what the core message is, the most significant thing to get first and get right out of the start? He is Lord. He is Lord of all. And that's so important. Because that implies some things. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Cooper said, he said there, it implies this. When you realize that Jesus is Lord of all, then that means there is not a square inch in which the whole domain of our human existence, not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's mine. Not a square inch. Every bit of it, he says, that's mine. You're mine. He points to me. You're mine. I think we have a hard time getting that. I think we can even get to a place where we declare that Jesus is my friend, that Jesus is my Savior, that Jesus forgave me, that Jesus did all these things for me, but still not get this right. And it may be because we've never understood Him at all, or it may be that we've forgotten this important truth and we need to get back to it. We have a hard time with this. You go back to that Jesus is my co-pilot thing, you wonder why. I can tell you some reasons. I mean, let me parallel that for a minute. How many of you have been in a place where you have to finally hand the, the wheel of the car over to your, your 16-year-old? It's a real easy thing to do, right? You jump in the passenger seat, you give them the wheel, right? What comes to mind, you know? Pictures of, you know, roses and rainbows and screams and flames, right? That's really what happens. And you have a hard time doing that. Well, why? Because we don't know yet if we can trust them to be in control. That's a serious thing for them to be in control with, and we're not sure if we can trust our lives to that. Well, maybe something like that applies here. Applies incorrectly here, but maybe it applies we just don't know if we can entrust the wheel over. So we're fine with him being the co-pilot, but we're not good with him being the driver. Or maybe even goes beneath that. Because underneath it all, when, if we're going to be honest, just brutally honest, we're self-centered. We're the people of the slogans. It's been like that since the beginning. And so we don't want to surrender control. We say to God, you know, it's okay that you can be in this aspect of my life, but not this aspect. I'll bring you these safe things, but these are off limits. 
I'll come clean with you on these aspects, but this is none of your business. You're Lord over here, just not Lord over there. And it doesn't work. John Piper said a great statement because this is a very subtle twist that can ensnare us. And I believe has ensnared a number of Christians and even it can ensnare churches. Something that we need to be very careful on. John Piper says this, he says, No one has ever asked me, what is the chief end of God? Now he's reflecting a question there, an old question that says, what is the chief end of man? And there's an old church catechism from many years ago that says, that answers that. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So he's kind of reflecting that. He's saying, you know, no one has ever asked me though, what is the chief end of God? He said, the answer is this, God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy His glory forever. He says, does that make God self-centered? No, that's where we get it wrong because He's God. It's different. But we tend to map ourselves onto that and we don't understand. That's proper and right for the one who is Lord to be lifted up. We get it in some way when we watch our movies, but then there's a twisting in us that doesn't get it. What's that twisting? It's the twisting of that song. It's the twisting that he says right here. He says, we often don't get this God-centeredness of God because, now listen, because many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. But that is a subtle danger. We may think we're centering our lives on God when in fact we're really making Him a means to our own self-esteem. Did you get that? I want to read that one more time because I think it's worth it. Listen to this. Many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is us-centered, man-centered. But that's a subtle danger. We may think we're centering our lives on God when in fact we're really making Him a means to our own self-esteem. He goes on to say, over and against this danger, I urge you to ponder that God loves His glory more than He loves us and that that is the foundation of His love for us. He says, do you get that? Do you understand that? Because that changes everything. Do we understand that it's all about God? Properly and rightly so. Do we understand that Jesus is Lord? So the question really becomes... Is he Lord or not? In your life and in mine, is he Lord or not? And in this remaining time, this is how I would answer that. I would answer that by asking the question a little different way. What is he not Lord of? What is he not Lord of in your life? We saw that Jesus was baptized. What's interesting when you read on beyond that is right after that, we see this one who is Lord of all. He is led to a moment in which he's tested to be proved that he's Lord of all. An interesting thing for, to happen to him. And he passes all the tests. He's sinless. But there's an application in this for us. We see this in Matthew 4. This happens right after the baptism. It tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. The devil leads him there to tempt him. He wants him to fail. He wants us to fail. He was there in the beginning when all of the self-centeredness came in. And he's still there now. He wants us to fail in that. But God, in the Spirit of God, leads Jesus in the wilderness to be tested. It's different. God wants to test us and prove our character. He wants to prove something better in us. He wants to work something out that's of Him. And so He will submit us to these things, and you will face these things. You will face these same challenges in your life. Because after all, if Jesus was subject to these kind of tests, shouldn't we be? Don't we think we will be? And so what do they look like? There's many things we could talk about I don't have time to today. 
But here's the three basic things that he was subjected to in that wilderness. The first one was when he was tempted to make stones into bread because he was hungry. That has to do with the, the passion, the passions, the hungers of things that drive us that sometimes aren't God-focused. He was also tempted to jump from the temple. He's told, if you do that, maybe God will save you. So the devil said. That has to do with the pride of life, thinking that God owes me something, that if I can even test him and throw myself off a building, then he'll save me. That's what the devil was saying. As if God has to respond to me. That's pride. And then the third thing that he was tempted with was he was offered all the kingdoms of the world. If you would leave God and follow me, the devil said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Yeah, he's got a lot of tremendous influence in this world, believe it or not. And that includes all of us who belong in the kingdoms of the world. He has a lot of influence to to lead us astray. He tried to tempt Jesus with that, and that has to do with power. Being in control. When do we face these kind of tests in our life? What do they look like? What are the passions that are misplaced and the hungers in us that he is not Lord over in our lives? There was a series that we did on Thursdays a couple years ago called Roots, which we talked about some of these things and how there's a common approach out there that basically applies to everybody. It's biblically based, that that basically says these are the first steps in coming to deal with passions and hungers that are are misplaced and not of God in your life. The first thing is you've got to admit you're powerless. You realize that you're stuck on these things, these compulsive things, behaviors, addictions, struggles, hungers, whatever they are. We come to believe that a, a power greater than us can deliver us. That's God. And we entrust our lives. We turn our will over to Him. That's the first step. Do you notice the approach in that? It's basically saying, I am powerless and you are Lord. You can help me in this scenario. What areas of our lives are we not doing that in? Where we say, you have no place here. Because if that's the case, He's not Lord there. There was a friend of mine recently that sent out a very, very vulnerable text. He sent it to me and a few other brothers. Some of us that we kind of, we, we talk with each other. We keep each other accountable. We walk life through together. And basically the text was, hey, I'm struggling right now. My mind is going to places it should not go. And I need some help. Will you guys pray with me? And it was amazing to see in that moment uh, people coming together. These guys praying for one another, holding that person up and, and walking them through, watching them walk through to victory in that. But why did it happen? It happened because in that moment of time, they basically said, I'm not Lord over this. I don't own this. I don't have the right to go do this on my own. So I'm going to bring it forward. I'm going to do what I have to do in order to arrest this and allow Christ to be Lord in my life. And I so commend that person for what they did. That's an inspiration to me because that's how it should be. We need to be able to turn to those that we trust We need to be able to to expose those things that God wants to remove, those hungers and things that are misplaced. Is he Lord there or not? What about the pride of life? There's a scripture in Ephesians that talks about the things that can drive us, the acts of the flesh, it calls it, the acts of the, the sinful aspect of us, or the fruit that God wants to produce. Let's look at a little bit of both of those. Some of those acts of the flesh are things like fits of rage. Are you angry with people? Are you displaying that anger to your spouse, to your children, to others? If so, he's not Lord there. Discord, separating, causing separations, dividing people through gossip or other means. Are you doing that? If so, he's not Lord there. Selfish ambition, pursuing ambition, things that you want to gain, even if it means manipulating others or using others to get there. Does that happen in your life? If so, he's not Lord there. 
Or what about some of the fruit that he wants to see in our life? Let's turn it around. Love, joy, peace. Is there peace in your home? Is there peace in you? If not, he's not Lord there. You need to bring that to him and understand why. There's some things you probably need to submit. Patience. Are you patient with those in your life? If not, he's not Lord there. Gentleness, faithfulness. There's an individual that walked this faithfulness through on something with their life very recently that I so commend them for. Them and their family was a very difficult thing. They had to choose between what was right and where their hearts were. And they made the very difficult choice to have to do what's right. In the end, I believe God will protect them in that circumstance as well. But it had an aspect to do of choosing who was Lord in their life. It's not always easy to make these choices. But the question is, is he Lord there? John Stott even mentioned an aspect of this that relates to how we treat each other as Christians. He said, the secret of our relationships with one another in the church, especially when we have our differences, he said, is this, Jesus Christ is Lord. That makes the difference in how we'll treat each other and even have our differences. And it reflected something I heard from a man named Stuart McAlpine that was so, so effective, it arrested me. He said this, he said, when we come to each other within this community of faith or in multiple communities of faith, if we're coming to each other or dealing with each other on the standpoint of we're all brothers and sisters, he said, that's actually off base. Because what we're doing there, frankly, is allowing our own sense of sibling rivalry to come in. You ever have that with brothers or sisters? You know, you're all warring at each other. It still doesn't really arrest that. He said, instead, we should be coming to each other as sons and daughters of the same Father, the same Lord. Because then, as we approach one another, we will hear His voice saying, how are you treating my son? How are you treating my daughter? These are the things that need to guide us in conversations with each other, in conversations we have when others are not around. These are the things that need to guide us. His lordship and all of that. I know an individual that recently I talked to, I, very, I respect very much. Because some years ago, as they were having a difference in a dispute within a church scenario, even though they had to walk it through, and it was some difficult stuff, and they walked it through with integrity and had to deal with certain issues, doesn't mean we, we paper those things over. We have to deal with very real issues at times, very real differences. But yet, the heart of this individual for the church was pristine the desire to protect and care for God's church because He is Lord of His church. He's Lord of us and our relationships with each other. And I commend that person for what they displayed in that in their lives, as hard as it might have been at times. This changes the baseline for everything we do. Or even power, and I'll leave you with this last thought. In what ways do we wield power with each other? Or in what ways do we even accept the power that we don't have? Jesus in another 3.16 in the book of Acts heals an individual. But He doesn't always do that in our time and in our way. So when those moments come, how do we respond to God and His Lordship? Do we trust? I'm thinking of somebody in, who, who walked this through in their life somewhat recently. Lost somebody of many years, somebody very close to them. A very difficult loss. And yet there they were responding back to
to God in faith. It doesn't mean you can't grieve. It doesn't mean you can't feel anger. It doesn't mean you don't, hopefully we would process that together because that's what the church is supposed to be. But the fact that they were pressing through that and into faith and trust, that tells me in their life, Jesus is Lord. And I commend them for that because it's the hard times that prove these things. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, we'll end with this. Says to us concerning him, Therefore God elevated Jesus to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My goal in this message was not to communicate, and I hope I haven't given the imagery, of an aspect of a God who demands His worship, and if we don't give it, then we're going to suffer and pay for that. Because that's not who God is. The God who chooses to become that baby in flesh, that He might walk with us, that He might suffer our sufferings, that He might understand our temptations, and we're going to get to all that in this series. That's not the picture of God as an angry tyrant who demands this worship. That's not the God of Scripture. But at the same time, it is so crucial that we don't start the question of how we have relationship with God with me or with you. Because it's not about you. Creation is about its creator. And this issue, the first question, the first aspect of Jesus is not that Jesus is my Savior. That's true. And that's important and it's central to our relationship with God. But the first aspect of Jesus is Jesus is Lord. If we don't get that right, we get nothing else right. But if you're going to be left with one thought about God in this, then let it be an imagery that maybe we captured in that video earlier. And that was this. That you notice those creatures didn't come forward because they seemed coerced. There was no whip at their back. They didn't come forward because they felt guilty. There was a sense in that in which they were anticipating what they were going to see. They were anticipating who they were going to see. And they relished in that moment of bowing the knee and recognizing His rightful place and their place and connection in response to Him. And that's what God wants of us. He doesn't want us rushing to Him because we're pushed along. He doesn't want us going there because we feel so guilty or we don't fit in so we've got to do what the rest of the crowd is doing. That is not what He wants to motivate us. He wants us to realize that there is no better place for us to find ourselves than in the center of who He is as Lord of all. And when we can make that transition, it makes all the difference in the world. And so will we go to Him with anticipation? Will we recognize who the King of this world is? 
Sometimes we do. Sometimes we forget. But He always gives us another opportunity to remember. I'd like to end with the words from missionary A.B. Simpson. He was A.W. Tozer's mentor, and this is what he said. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is His Word. Once His gifts I wanted, but now the giver I own. Once I sought for healing, now Himself alone. Once it was my working, His it hence shall be. Once I tried to use Him, now He uses me. Once the power I wanted, but now the mighty one. Once for self I labored, but now for Him alone. All and forever, Jesus I will sing. Everything is Jesus, and Jesus everything. As we walk this conversation through the next few weeks, we'll learn some more aspects and touch on some more about this whole plan of who God is and what He's done with us. But let it start this week even. Connect with Him and make Him Lord that He already is. Allow Him into some aspect of your life and start with that declaration, Jesus is Lord, Lord of all. Father, we come to You in this moment of time. May our hearts be rent before you. Whatever we're dealing with, it could be a struggle, God. May we submit that to you. It could be a pride. May we decimate that before your throne. It may be the need for you, God, in some way, shape, or form. May you be there and be high and lifted up, Lord of our lives. Let us go forth in this moment, God, and recognize you for who you are, the Lord of the world, our King, our Savior, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.